today on Grace To You. God cannot experience evil. Who is the one who would want to separate us from the love of Christ? Satan is, and he's before the throne of God, relentlessly telling God to let us go because of our unfaithfulness. God will never let his people go. What in the world makes us so embarrassed about the gospel? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You cannot deal with the Lord's table superficially. You cannot deal with the Lord's table perfunctorily as if it's just a routine. You have to come to the Lord's table very thoughtfully and in a worthy way. And what that means essentially is you've got to take a look at your life. What you're doing is really the highest act of worship in the life of the church, and you are celebrating Christ's death on your behalf, and it was your sin that put Him there, and you don't want to come to celebrate His death for your sin while holding on to that very sin for which He died. Deal with the sin in your life, and that means to acknowledge it and to confess it and repent from it and turn away from it. And that all starts with an honest recognition of sin. The society in which we live now is so completely engulfed in a reversal of all biblical morality that it would be hard to even impose on this culture a biblical definition of sin without starting a riot. And that seeps into the church, and the way the culture treats sin so lightly has become the way churches treat sin. But it cannot be so. It it cannot be acceptable for us as believers to think lightly about sin. And uh, I want us to think seriously about it, to think um, with some discernment about it, and not in some external category, but about the sin that is in us. So in order to help us to look honestly at sin as we come to celebrate our Lord's death for that sin, I want you to turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and I I want us to look at verses 13 through 17. Verses 13 through 17, I'll read it to you and then we'll consider it. James 1, 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God or tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now James is addressing something that's just part of being human, and that is the propensity to blame somebody else for your sin. 
Certainly that's what people do in our world today, culturally, but it tends to be what we all do personally, to say, well, it's really not my fault. This is the world I'm living in. These are the circumstances I find myself in. This is the, the effect of the sin of Adam and the fall. I'm a fallen person living in a fallen world, facing fallen circumstances, and I don't know how I'm supposed to avoid sin. There, there is sin in me, and this, this is the world that God has placed me in. The tendency is to blame God, not necessarily directly as if God were the tempter, but indirectly in the way that Adam did when God confronted Adam about his disobedience and eating of the forbidden fruit. Adam said to God, the woman you gave me made me do it. Now he wasn't blaming the woman, he was blaming God as much as, as if he had said, look, I went to sleep single. I woke up married. I didn't even know what a woman was. And there she was, and she led me into sin, and you made her." This is the general pattern of human blame-shifting. Let's go back to James 13, and let's see the proposition that he gives to us in verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Stop there. Don't say that. Now, I don't know that you would actually push it all off on Him, but James is telling us you can't push any of it off on Him. True confession starts with full, full responsibility for sin. It starts with, O wretched man that I am. I don't do what I ought to do, I do what I ought not to do, Romans 7. And I, I will agree, we, we don't go so far as to say God is the tempter because we know better than that. But we certainly do blame God indirectly, remotely for the circumstances that we are in. I'm a victim. What do you expect? Um, I have these anger issues because the people around me are impossible to deal with and they continually frustrate me. I have these anger issues and these rebellion issues because my parents are overbearing and lack understanding and lack compassion and don't want to listen to me and this is the circumstance I'm in. What do you expect me to do? How do you expect me to respond? James will not allow that. And neither will the Lord allow that. There is no place for seeing yourself as a victim. You're not a victim, you're a perpetrator of sin, so am I. No one should ever speak of sin and God in the same sentence, as if God had anything to do with sin. And James is going to give us four proofs of that in this text. I want you just to look at them with me. The nature of evil, the nature of man, the nature of lust, and the nature of God. It's a powerful argument for why God can't be blamed for sin, 
and why we must take full responsibility. Let's look first at the nature of evil. Verse 13, middle of the verse, here's reason number one why we don't blame God. God cannot be tempted by evil. He Himself does not tempt anyone. Now listen, the deities of uh, the pagans and the false gods of the nations throughout history are by virtue of their creators who are men and demons, innately evil. They are innately tempters. They are loveless. They are wicked. They are guilty of um, uh, not, not just something like um, whimsy in what they do, but, but evil intent. They are full of malice. They are threatening. These are the gods of the nations. False gods are all that way because they are creations of fallen men and fallen demons, and they reflect the character of their Creator. The stream doesn't rise higher than its source, so when men and demons create deities, they create deities like themselves who are evil, only they're evil in a supernatural and therefore much more vast sense. But the nature of evil as unholiness, the absence of goodness, the presence of wickedness, the nature of evil makes it mutually exclusive from God because God is holy. Leviticus, throughout the whole book, God repeats, be holy for I am holy, be holy for I am holy, I am holy, I am the Lord, your holy one. Isaiah 6, the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. But notice the words that James uses, God cannot be tempted by evil. It's an interesting verb here that's translated cannot be tempted. It's the verb pereo, and it is used only here in the entire New Testament. And it actually means to experience, to experience, to literally have a personal integrated experience. And James is saying God cannot experience evil. He cannot. He has no capacity for it. He has no vulnerability to it. Evil is a part from God. And there are a lot of ways that you can see that illustrated in Scripture, but, but I would love to show you one that I think will be an encouragement, and I doubt whether you've ever thought about this before. God can be tempted without succumbing. So when it says God cannot be tempted, it means, James means in the sense that the temptation has any real connection to Him or there any potential to respond. God cannot be successfully tempted. God, better the translation, and that's why I told you what the word means. God cannot experience the evil. And I'll give you an illustration of that. Satan goes after God, and I'll show you two places, Job chapter 1, you don't have to turn to it. Satan shows up in heaven and he says to God, you are receiving worship and love and obedience from Job because he's blessed. 
I'm telling you, if you stop blessing Him, He only is faithful to you, He only trusts in you because of all that you've done for Him. Take it away and He'll curse you. This was an attempt on Satan's part in the earliest part of redemptive history to see if he could get God to do something in the life of Job that would destroy his faith. He's tempting God to do something that would destroy Job's faith. God says to Satan, go ahead, I'll prove to you that the faith that comes from me and the relationship I have with Job is absolutely unbreakable no matter what he suffers. So Satan comes into the life of Job, devastates his life, kills all his children, takes away his health, takes away all his possessions, all his animals. He is literally sitting in a heap of dirt, scraping the filthy boils on his skin with a broken piece of pottery. And Job says this, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Satan was tempting God to cause something to happen in the life of Job that would destroy his faith. But no matter what happened in the life of Job, nothing could destroy that faith because that faith was designed by God to endure. God would have had to have broken His hold on Job. And the point of the book of Job is that when God has someone that belongs to Him, nothing can change that, nothing. Satan contempts God to act against Job or anybody else. God has no capacity to succumb to that temptation. Now even a more dramatic illustration. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 10, it says that Satan is before the throne of God day and night accusing the brethren. He's doing exactly what he did against Job, only he's doing it constantly. Satan constantly is in the, in the very place of God his throne room, accusing believers, tempting God with the diatribe against us to break His hold on us. And how does God respond to that? In Job's case, the, the faith was unbreakable because God held it firm. But listen to God's Word through Paul in Romans 8, if God is for us, who is against us? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, Satan, will it succeed? God is the one who justified. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is, who is bringing a charge against God's elect? Satan is. 
Who is he that condemns? Satan is. Who is the one who would want to separate us from the love of Christ? Satan is, and he's before the throne of God, relentlessly telling God to let us go because of our unfaithfulness. Tempting God to throw away His children because of their failure. Would God ever do that? Let me tell you something. If you could lose your salvation, then God is a sinner and has fallen to a temptation from Satan. That is a profound thought. If a person can lose their salvation, then Satan has triumphed over God. Satan has broken God's holiness. God is not holy. But God is holy and has no experience of evil. Satan can do this day and night until he's finally thrown into the lake of fire, and all that he throws at God is simply dandelions in a hurricane, blown into oblivion. God will never let His people go. Your security as a believer is bound up in the holiness of God. The character of God is impregnable to the onslaught of evil. So look, don't blame God. The nature of evil precludes that. God will never, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but always will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He is the one who delivers you from the temptation. He is not the source of the temptation. So the nature of evil precludes God being its author, directly or indirectly. Secondly, the nature of man. The nature of man, verse 14, so important. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Where's the problem? Not outside of you, what? Inside. But here's the, the fact that's so essential. Every person, ekastas, each one, no exception, individually, falls under this temptation when he is, two verbs here, carried away and enticed. The first one is literally dragged away dragged away. It is a... it is to be drawn away, lured away, a compelled, impelled, drawn by some kind of inner power. It's a hunting term. It describes a trap. There is something in the nature of the animal that desires of the food that is in the trap and the desire drags the animal into that trap. There's nothing wrong, nothing evil about the trap in one sense, nothing evil about the food. It's what's evil in the heart that activates the entrapment. Temptation always promises a tasty indulgence, and it delivers death. So the reason people do wicked things is because their hearts are wicked. 
O wretched man that I am, Paul says. The problem is not outside of you, it is in you. That's why in the Middle Ages when there were monks going to monasteries, thinking that they could get in a monastery and, and overcome temptation, they found that it was utterly impossible because they, they took the corruption in there with them. Sometimes they would take thorn bushes and flagellate themselves and try to seclude themselves in some painful environment bereft of any kind of social graces. And all they found was they were isolated with their own wretchedness. The preposition here is upa with the U, meaning the near and direct agent is in us. Like Pogo said, we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17 says, Romans 3 says that men are killers, bloodthirsty killers at heart. That's why we sin, because of the corruption inside of us. You can't blame God because of the nature of evil which is alien to God. You can't blame God because you're the problem, I'm the problem, God's not the problem. Let's think a little more deeply about the third evidence that James gives. The reason you can't blame God thirdly is because of the nature of lust. You've got to come to grips with the fact that this lust that operates in us is a powerful force and you need to know how it works. Verses 15 and 16, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He's talking to believers, beloved brethren. He changes the metaphor. He shifts from hunting and fishing baited hooks and traps to childbirth, to conception, gestation, birth, and death. Now most people think of sin as a single act. Sin is not a single act. Sin is not a single act. And I'm talking about even an instantaneous momentary flashpoint sin where you say things you shouldn't say, where you get violent, you get angry, you, you overreact, or, or whether on a, on, a, on a short impulse you lie because you're caught and you don't want to tell the truth and you're trying to cover so you tell a lie, and it isn't something you premeditated and planned for days and days. Or, or maybe uh, you have a, an opportunity to steal some money and it's an impulse kind of thing and you grab the money and go. Or maybe you have an impulse to gossip about somebody and say something about them that is critical of them and demeaning to them and you haven't plotted it, it just came up. Or maybe you're even agreeing with somebody who's feeding you that kind of thing. You might not think of it as something that is a process, but that sin, even that momentary violent sin that seems like it all happened in one flashpoint is a process. That baby isn't born unless that baby has been conceived and been gestating. In other words, you've already been harboring attitudes sinful attitudes with regard to your own self and what you deserve and toward other people. And the flashpoint is just the birth. The conception came along a lot earlier. So sin, any kind of sin, is simply the, the child that you've been growing in your heart. 
It's the evil child. And when that child comes out, it brings forth death. When it is matured, it brings forth, literally to cease to be pregnant, apakue, to cease to be pregnant, out comes death. What an amazing picture. Think of sin that way. A baby conceived in your emotions and then gone to your mind and then given a place in your will and at the right place, at the right time, it is born a killer. The expectation of a mother for a child is that it would be full of life and love and joy. This baby is a killer. All kinds of deadly things come from sin. It always wreaks death because every sin will cause death, your death and even the death of Christ. So verse 16, stop being deceived. Stop, my beloved brethren. Stop at the start. One final thought. The nature of evil, the nature of man, the nature of lust precludes God having any part of it. Finally, the nature of God Himself, verse 17, just a comment. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, the Creator of all the heavenly bodies, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. What comes from God? Only what? Only what? Good. Only good. This is the heart of the text. Don't blame God. Sin doesn't come from Him. Only good comes from Him. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, and this cannot change. No variation, no shifting shadow. So when you face temptation, run to God. And listen, here's the simple reality. Whatever that sin offers you, God has something, what? Far better, a heavenly, perfect gift. Sin is sin. By definition, it is lawlessness. By definition, it is a violation of God's law and therefore an attack on His character. Any sin. The Bible is clear in saying, if you violate the law of God in one place, you've destroyed the whole law and you're worthy of eternal punishment. But there are gradations of sin. It might surprise some people, but some sins are worse than other sins. The worst sin of all sins is to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is unforgivable. Ultimately, that's the sin that sends everybody to eternal hell. The worst of rejections would be to know the gospel, to have heard the gospel, and to have rejected the gospel. That's why the Bible says of how much greater punishment Will that person be worthy who has heard the truth and in a sense trampled it? So sin is sin, but, but there are different levels of sin and eternal punishment is connected to those levels of sin. You know, Jesus actually said there would be harsh punishment for some, many stripes, and there would be fewer stripes for others. Having said that, while we understand the Bible saying 
there may be levels of punishment in hell, it's still hell. And it's separation from God forever. And it's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So while there, there may be a relative difference, the absolute nature of hell should be avoided by everyone. That's why the Lord provided the death of his son and a sacrifice for our sins that we might escape that place and enjoy the blessings of heaven forever.